Hey everyone, I'm John Steele, and this is After Four, a podcast for InterVarsity alumni. Life after college is hard, and even a great experience with your InterVarsity chapter doesn't shield you from the challenges of transition. As we hear stories from real alumni learning how to make it in their post-InterVarsity reality, my hope is that this podcast will offer some encouragement, a few laughs, and even some hope for the future. This is After Four, and these are your stories. Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is John Steele with After Four, the podcast for InterVarsity alumni, and it is great to be together again this week. Hey, last time we left you with a cliffhanger of an ending, so I don't want to torture you with a bunch of jibber-jabber, blibber-blabber, or a word that I just learned today, logaria. Doesn't sound like something any of us want to be accused of or accursed with, so we're going to jump right in. Last week, we got to spend some time getting to know pastor, author, and poet Drew Jackson. We also got to hear about some of the inspiration behind his book, God Speaks Through Wombs. And today, Drew is going to share a few pieces from his book, and he and I are going to spend some time discussing them together. You all will have the distinct displeasure of hearing me show my complete ineptitude for literary analysis. Thankfully, Drew is compelling and a joy to listen to, so just block me out altogether. I'm excited for you all to hear this conversation. I found it both incredibly enjoyable and helpfully challenging. I think you will too, and I think you'll be glad you listened in. So here is part two of my conversation with Drew. This one's for you, alumni. Can we jump into a couple pieces from the book here? Let's do it. This poem's called Theotokos, which means God bearer. And it is written in reflection on Luke chapter one, verses 26 through 38, which is the Annunciation. Young. Brown, from that side of town, and now with a baby on the way. You call her blessed? I've heard her call worse things. Thought, ho, bust down, tramp. No wonder she is troubled by this greeting. But they can't see what you see. What do they know? She is holy. Theotokos, overshadowed. The spirit hovers and she is covered, ready to birth new creation, delivering us salvation. Now, there's a particular part of this that I really love, but I want to let you talk about it first. (laughs) I want to let you talk about your own work first. Tell me what's happening as you're writing this. Honestly, I wrote this thinking about what society has said particularly about women, women of color, Black women, who, whose stories are so summed up in like what we see in Mary's story, right? Call it what you want to call it. She's a teenage mother out of wedlock, this, that, the other. And what we map onto that, the value judgment that we place on someone like a Mary. As I'm writing this, I'm saying, Okay, who is Mary in 2020, in 2021, in 2022? What do we say about her? What has been said about her from society at large? What has white supremacy said about her? What have men said about her? All of these things I'm thinking about. And in the text, it always strikes me in the Annunciation 
that it says she was not troubled by what she saw an angel appearing to her. She was troubled by what she heard. She was troubled by the greeting that Gabriel shows up and says, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. And she was troubled by this greeting. Why would someone be troubled at the sound of being called favored by God? I think there are a thousand things you could say about that. But in that part, you know, you call her blessed. I've heard her call worse things. And all of the things that have been said over her that maybe she's internalized about herself. So when she hears you are blessed and highly favored, it's so out of what she's normally used to hearing about who she is that no wonder she is troubled by this greeting. That's some of what I was thinking about. And then just sort of what happens with Mary. You know, they can't see what you see. What do they know? It's almost sort of this reclaiming. Wow. So first of all, as we're talking here, (laughs) I'm just having this very real internal experience of like, wow, I do not have the wherewithal or the personal experience to be able to engage with you, Drew, on the level that you like. I mean, first of all, because this is your art. So obviously this is something real and personal and something that comes from inside you that you know in a way that I will never know. But then the things that have inspired this work, I knew that to some extent as I was reading of like, there are so many experiences that I just cannot identify with because I haven't lived these things. And now you and I are talking and it's like, oh, dang, I'm really out of my league here. So I'll say one thing that comes to my mind as you're sharing this is more of an application moment for me is what does it look like for me to engage with people that the world around me has given a particular label? To look at them and say, you are blessed and highly favored. For that to be the first label that I give to them is blessed and highly favored. To me, this parallels what's happening in the Beatitudes on the Sermon on the Mount. Yes. The people who are blessed are the ones that you're like, no, these are the throwaway people. Are you kidding me? Exactly. <laughs> and they are labeled blessed in every one of those categories. And for me to say, what does it mean for me to look at somebody that the typical societal label is you've messed up? Clearly, you've done something wrong to be in the situation that you're in. And for me to say, you know what? God is for you. God loves you. You are blessed and highly favored. And how does that paint the way that I interact with you? Yeah. And to begin to ask again the question, who then are the ones who are delivering us salvation? Who are the ones who are carrying the Christ child. And we know that's not who you think. It's not who society would say it would be. And yet Mary is what Eastern Orthodox theologians would call the Theotokos, the God bearer. But that Mary is an archetype, very much like an Adam, an archetype of humanity at large. Yes, there is something particular about Mary and what she's going through and what she's doing, but there's also something universal about Mary and that what's happening with her is meant to speak to the fact that all of humanity is meant to be a theotokos. All of humanity is meant to be those through whom divinity is birthed into the world. Yes. That, that as we were created to be image bearers, we are bearers of this Holy one. We are the bearers of God. Yes, exactly. That's fascinating. And you already mentioned the line that when I read it, I was like, oh my gosh, that's so amazing. I love that line of delivering us salvation. That's a combination of words that I'm used to hearing, but not in this way of being delivered into salvation, but Mary delivering us salvation. When I read that, I was like, that's it for me. That's, <laughs> I'm only in the first chapter and this might be my favorite line of the whole book. 
And see, I love that. I think one of the things about poetry, too, is that I have what was in my mind as I'm writing this, but also each poem has a life of its own. And the way that it meets you is the way that it meets you. And that's now a part of the community of interpretation of this poem. So I'm always interested in how people are interacting with these poems because the poems are doing things that I never even intended them to do, which is fine. And again, this hits on a theme that we've talked about a number of times already. You're putting something else out into the world that you wrote from a particular perspective, a particular experience. But that doesn't mean that that has to be exactly the experience that other people have as they're reading and engaging with it. And that there's a communal word that can be brought to this new thing. And we can share this much broader experience. There's another text that you would really like to talk about that you mentioned out of chapter three, Waters of My Weeping. I would love to jump there and to talk about that. This poem is written in reflection on Luke chapter three, verse 20, where Jesus hears the news that his cousin John has been arrested. The waters of my weeping. One of my brothers, my cousins, added to the number of your incarcerated masses. One in three of us. Unarmed. Yes. A threat? Yes. To your abuse of power and the way you sit so comfortably in your palace while we struggle to eat out in these streets. But in this hour, I weep. Again. For this innocent man baptized into your carceral system, immersed into this jail with no bail, I am forced to witness this unholy sacrament, this state-sponsored religious act. And for what? Something about his person disturbed you. Maybe by passing him through these waters, you will convert him to the faith of unsacred silence, one way or another. I'm sorry that it frightens you when we fight for our humanity. But tonight, I cry. These tears have become my food. I dip myself in the pool of the waters of my weeping. For my brother. For my cousin. For all of us. Until they stop locking us up. Tell me about that, Drew. So like I said, this poem comes out of reflection on a verse that when we read it, we we keep it moving. It's just moving along the narrative. But I read it and it just stopped me in my tracks because one, I was just thinking about the humanity of Jesus hearing about his cousin being locked up. It was one of those moments where I just felt a deep kinship with Jesus who knows the experience of seeing your people unjustly put behind bars and that this wasn't something that Jesus had just seen once. This was something that was happening, had happened numerous times to his people. And so I was taken to a moment where this was when I was a staff worker. I was working with black students in LA. We had a men's retreat. We took a group of black men. We got like a house in the hills somewhere And we were like, you know what, we're just going to spend a few days together. We wanted to make this experience intergenerational. My dad flew out from Atlanta. My father-in-law flew out from Pennsylvania. 
Brandon that I mentioned earlier flew out from North Carolina. And we had this time where we were able to be together and just laugh and enjoy, but also create some space for lament. And in creating space for lament, we asked the question, how many of you in here know someone right now who is in the prison system? And every single person in the room raised their hand. Everyone. Wow. And it was just this moment of we all sort of looked around at each other and you just saw grown black men in tears. I reference a statistic in the beginning of the poem where I say one in three of us. And that's a reference to the statistic that says that one in three Black men between the ages of 18 and 35 are in the prison system. And the ways that we interpret things like that say a lot about how we view the world. So you can interpret that and say, well, that must just mean that Black men are more prone to criminality somehow. You can have that interpretation of it. Or you can say something is really wrong with the system. Something's not right. There's no way. There's no way that this should be what it is. So I was just sitting with all of that and feeling, like I said, a kinship with Jesus in a moment of like, oh, Jesus knows what this is like. Jesus knows this experience. So that's this poem. (laughs) Once again, I mean, Drew, I, I wish I knew well how to respond as you're sharing these things. This is just another one of those moments for me of the importance of hearing people's stories it's so easy to read a statistic like one in three and to then interpret based on my story and my experience. But what is really different is for me to hear that story right there. And that starts to sort of widen the walls of my room to start to create more space for asking questions and for wanting to hear more stories. And then to once again, look at the way that scripture can be real and meaningful and relevant you to know those stories and to have those experiences and then to meet with Jesus in a way and for a reason that I have not. That's a moment for me to hear that story and to say like, wow, this is a side of Jesus that I have not known. And that's a really important experience for me to have because I'm listening to your story. Is we live in a world where rapport and the idea of trust is something that we just don't have so often, it feels like. And sitting down in a space like this and hearing stories is a place where trust builds, where that grows my desire to ask questions and to have a better understanding and to know that that stems out of an experience with Jesus is yes. sad, it is heavy, and it's amazing that those things are happening at the same time. I don't know how to feel about the fact that this is the next one that I'm asking about coming out of this space. It feels like a hard place to go, but maybe another useful part of this conversation, and that's under the rubble from Luke 7. I would really like to talk about that because this is another one that hit for me just in a very meaningful way. I don't know. It meant something to me as I was reading it, that's for sure. So under the rubble, this poem was written in reflection on Luke 7 in the first 10 verses of Luke 7 is when Jesus heals the centurion's servant. And it's when Jesus says, he doesn't have to go to him. He just just says a word. And he says, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. So I'm interacting with all of that under the rubble. I learned early on that certain people 
in places where God forsaken, faces upon whom the divine sun does not shine. The Lord be gracious to us and bless us. But my countenance fell when he said that great faith was found in their land, amongst their people, amidst that evil, the greatest he had ever seen. The force of that statement felt like a bomb dropped on the walled-in city of my life. When your worldview explodes and you are left under the rubble of what was once fortification, you can either work to emerge into a new mystery or suffocate under the pile of your illusory certitude. Tell me a little bit about that piece, Drew. I mean, <laughs> there's a lot happening. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's a lot happening there. Definitely. And just thinking about the text, you think about who the centurion is in relationship to the people. And that opening stanza, when I say I learned early on that certain people and places were God forsaken, faces upon whom the divine sun does not shine. And here's the thing. In some ways, they had every right to feel the way that they felt about Roman centurions and their treatment of their people. So this is no judgment on that. This is more of a, I get it. And to sort of take you into more poetry and form here, when I take that ancient blessing, the Lord be gracious to us and bless us. The Lord makes face shine. I broke the lines there specifically where I broke them because I want this emphasis to be on the to us part. And just processing that and even considering for myself, who is that for me? And how have I done that? When I look at the ministry of Jesus and the work of God in the world, I see a constant pushing on the line of where we have set up the boundary of God's blessing, God's grace, of who belongs. There's always this pushing on that boundary line. And so whenever we come to a place where we say, okay, this is as far as it goes, it's almost like Jesus transgresses that boundary. And so that's sort of what I'm talking about in this poem. When I say I felt like a bomb dropped on the walled-in city of my life, it's like just this image of having built a wall at a certain place and to say that anybody who's on the outside of this wall, for whatever reason that they're on the outside of this wall to me, means that they are outside of the sphere of the love of God, outside of the sphere of the salvation of God. And then Jesus comes and there's just a bomb dropped on that and that wall is shattered. What do I do when that wall is shattered? What is my response when I see Jesus transgressing the boundary line? Is it to hunker down in my own certitude? Or like I say, you can either work to emerge into a new mystery or suffocate under the pile of your illusory certitude. That's what I'm wrestling with in this poem. I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I should have acknowledged this before asking you to read it, but I didn't think about it. You say at the beginning of your book that you're writing this unapologetically as a Black man. And here you are as a Black man speaking about the poetry that you've written with me, a white man. The conversation that you and I are having right here feels like it walks right along with so much of what you're writing about in these pieces. So I think that that's part of the reason that this text hits so strong for me following waters of my weeping 
here you're talking about in that text where Jesus has just learned that his cousin has been imprisoned by this oppressive regime. And here you have a story about Jesus saying that he has not seen such great faith in his own people, but he's seen it in somebody that represents this oppressive regime. And that all of these bring up really uncomfortable realities of these interplays of systems and people. So it's interesting to me, even as you and I are talking here, that it feels to me, and maybe I'm just being overly sensitive within myself here, I don't know, but it feels like, oh man, are there things at play here even as we're talking? Yeah, absolutely. It is real. To not acknowledge them is to live in some sort of dream world. It is real and appropriate to acknowledge what exists between us. The context, both the immediate, but also the larger societal and historical context that we live inside of that is always operating and that was operating in the time of Jesus. He's operating inside of a large historical context as well with all sorts of narratives that are at work. And he knows what he's doing. He's not oblivious to these things. There are so many places where Jesus is intentionally pushing on that boundary line of who's a child of Abraham. Or who is the this or who's the that or who does God love? And it's fascinating to me because what Jesus isn't doing, and I think it's important to say this, what Jesus isn't doing is he is not blessing an oppressive system and saying it is okay. What he is doing is he is affirming the image of God in the centurion. He's saying sort of similar to what he said in John 3 to Nicodemus, where he says, the spirit blows where it wills. You don't get to say where the spirit blows and where the spirit doesn't. That's not your call. And to draw the people's attention to what the spirit is doing outside of the confines that they've placed around the spirit. And that seems to be always the thing that upsets the people the most. From the beginning of Jesus's ministry in Luke chapter four, I love that text because it speaks so deeply to who I believe Jesus to be in terms of the embodiment of a God who cares so deeply about the oppressed. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, to bring recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to release the captives, to proclaim jubilee. Yes, I can affirm and amen that. And that speaks deeply in my bones. And yet Jesus then turns around and basically says, everything that I just said is not just for you, but it's for those who have historically been your enemies. He specifically brings forward these stories of Elijah and the widow who's a Gentile who's been overlooked, that God sent his prophet to care for her. And what about Naaman the Syrian, who was an army commander? Stop, stop. I find myself resonating with the people who are like, Jesus, you've gone too far. And they literally want to throw him off of a cliff at that point. Wherever we find ourselves located, Jesus is always pushing that line. He's always challenging us on that. I think it's a great invitation for us to consider where we have placed the marker and how Jesus is transgressing that always. This has been relevant forever, but these last two years of things that we've experienced, this feels like a conversation that has come up over and over and over again, is I don't see how you can be fill in the blank person and that Jesus could love fill in the blank perspective or somebody who has fill in the blank perspective. Maybe he hates the perspective that they have, but that he loves them, that they are bearers of his image, that he died for them and that he longs for them to come to a place of repentance, just as he does for every one of us. So yeah, then the question becomes, I can say and affirm that God's love goes beyond the boundaries that I've placed. 
what then does it mean for a centurion to then come and follow? That's a different question. If you read about how the early church dealt with stuff like this, particularly in the context of Roman soldiers, they were very clear that the way of Jesus and the way of the sword don't mix. And so if you're going to follow Jesus, you got to drop your sword. Part of your baptism is saying, I will not kill anymore. If you can't drop that, then you don't want this way. And so I think there's certain things that we got to be clear about in that sense. You're invited on this way, but you can't bring that with you. That's part of repentance. What is the thing that you hold that you can't hold while you carry your cross? You have to put that down to be able to follow the path that Jesus followed and invites you to come on as well. And that might look different for me than it does for Drew, than it does for somebody listening to this podcast. There are things that you need to lay down and give up and say, that's not for me anymore. Drew, thanks for talking through those pieces. This was a challenging read. I think I got through the first chapter or two and I was like, this is really fun. This is really great. And then I kept going through. I was like, oh, this is getting harder. (laughs) 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 This is getting harder and harder the more that I read. I don't think it's been made any less challenging by talking to you, but it has become more real. That's a gift for me. So thank you for being willing to share and engage with me on some of these things. Somebody who's very much still in the midst of his journey. And that's just three. That's just three pieces out of this whole book. So people listening, you want to check this out because this will be a challenging read for you and a meaningful read for you. Drew, something that I noticed, though, is that the book ends at chapter eight. Is there more coming? Tell me about this. I stopped at chapter eight because that's where there's a turn in the text. So when you get into chapter nine, the tone of Luke changes and it becomes much more about discipleship on the way with Jesus. That's when you start to turn toward Jerusalem. There's a natural shift in the text. And so I was like, well, why don't I break here and leave this for what it is? And so there is more. (laughs) All right. I have finished the rest of it. And the next one's called Touch the Earth, Poems on the Way. It'll cover chapters nine all the way to the end of Luke. I'm excited about that one. It's different because we're dealing with the hard work of discipleship. That's awesome. I'm excited. Maybe another conversation down the road for you and me. For sure. Touch the Earth, Poems on the Way. That's awesome. Drew, in the interim between this book and the next, are there ways that people can keep in touch with you? Yeah, mainly Instagram. My Instagram is D Jackson Poetics. So you can follow me on Instagram. You can follow me on Twitter too, the same, same handle, D Jackson Poetics. Those are probably the best ways to keep in touch. Drew, thank you so much for your time. I've enjoyed it so much. Thank you. Thanks for being such a generous host and asking good questions. (laughs) (laughs) You're a very generous guest to say so. (laughs) I appreciate that. Okay, first of all, I want to acknowledge that you might be walking away from this episode feeling a lot of different ways about this conversation, about scripture engagement and application or about culture and race. Whatever you're experiencing, whether you'd label it as positive or negative, I encourage you to just sit with it for a bit. Ask Jesus what it is about the experience that you found so encouraging or discouraging. Is there something for you to learn from it? Maybe you walked away from this just needing a moment, and that's totally okay. But I hope you're also walking away with a really amazing word about the interplay of our communal and individual experiences with Scripture. In InterVarsity, we practice again and again a communal model of studying Scripture, the inductive or manuscript method. And in this model, individuals provide unique input while still submitting to the broader sense of the community as to where this text is leading. 
And since we're doing our best to let the text lead us, everyone is actually being asked individually and communally to submit ourselves to the leading of the Spirit and the authority of God's Word. While we do that, we also try our best to lay aside our own experiences and cultural lenses so we can have a clear view of what's happening in the text and what it meant for the original audience. Now, Drew mentioned last week that he doesn't think that's possible. I think he might be right about that, but I think we would all agree that understanding historical context and original intent is vital. And then through this process, we have a systematic way of engaging with God's Word as a community. And that is an amazing thing and part of what helps us maintain the foundational beliefs that our faith is built on. Things like God is creator, the reality of sin, Jesus is the son of God and the only way to a reconciled relationship with God. All important for us to continue studying and affirming together as a community of believers. But Drew has also given us an example here of the beautiful and unique ways that Jesus can meet us individually in scripture. A place where rather than setting aside our personal experiences, we're actually given the space to lean into them and meet a Jesus who wasn't just transforming lives then, but who is still seeking the lost, the forgotten, and the broken today. He's still available to meet with us, alumni, in unique and meaningful ways. And we don't have to be able to create something like God speaks through wombs or touch the earth as Drew has to engage with it. All we have to do is give the space and the time to meet with God in his word, and we will find the Jesus who binds up wounds, who brings back to life, and who calls into deep, deep discipleship. And that's going to require some significant time and effort on our part but it's real and it's accessible. Drew, thanks so much for sharing your work with us. Thank you for challenging us with it. And thank you for reminding us that we have the freedom to meet with Jesus in this way. I am so grateful that we got to spend this time together. If you'd like more from Drew, don't forget that you can find him on Instagram and Twitter at Poetics, and you can also find a link in the show notes to grab a copy of God Speaks Through Wombs and to pre-order Touch the Earth. And don't forget about that lifetime alumni discount. Okay, that was a lot of words for me. So much for not having Logaria today. Let's let somebody else talk for a minute. Hey, alumni, this is Imer Santiago, and I'm so excited to be your Urbana 22 Worship Director. I hope to see you at Urbana December 28th through the 31st in Indianapolis, where we will worship the Almighty God together as we discover, discern, and decide how He's inviting us to join Him in His global work. I'm also going to be joining John on the After Four podcast next week to talk about all things Urbana worship, and I might even play a special version of an Urbana 22 tune that you'll only get to hear right here on After Four. So make sure you come back next week. I'm excited to join you there, and I'm excited to see you at Urbana. That's right. Next week, we have our second Urbana guest and your Urbana 22 worship director, Imer Santiago. This was such a fun conversation, so make sure you come on back next week to get to know Imer, get some insight on Urbana 22 worship, and to hear the very chill version of a song that we're going to sing together in December. As always, you do not want to miss it, so subscribe to the podcast, set the episodes to download automatically, and share with all those old chapter members. All right, I'd say that's about enough for me for the week. I will see you in the after, alumni. Alumni.